Welcome to podcast number 19 of How to Rock Your Private Investigation Business. Today's date is January 21st, 2021, and I'm your host, John A. Oda. Today's guest is Tina Thomas. Tina is a private investigator and director of investigations at Subrosa Investigations based in Phoenix, Arizona. Tina specializes in matters concerning litigation support. She's passionate about investigations. Tina's goal is to protect her clients in business decisions and to teach junior investigators how to navigate the investigative waters. Tina is a long-term member of both the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, NCISS, and the Arizona Association of Licensed Private Investigators. She currently serves on the NCISS board as the second vice president and was previously Region 5 director for a little over two and a half years. It's my pleasure to have Tina Thomas on the show today. Welcome to my new podcast, How to Rocket Your PI Business, and it features successful private investigators who offer insights into their careers and advice to those just starting out or to those who are struggling. We will learn from the best. And of course, we cannot finish a show without asking them to share their favorite detective stories and maybe a few sage marketing tips. As a working investigator, coach, and writer, I hope to bring you inspiration, information, and entertainment in the areas that interest me most. Gather round my campfire as I invite you to listen in. This episode is brought to you by my recently published books for private investigators. How to launch your private investigation business. How to market your private investigation business. And how to boost your private investigation business. It also appears a three-book set in How to Rocket Your Private Investigation Business, the complete series. All can be found at your favorite online retailers in ebook or softcover. Did you know that I also coach private investigators how to survive and thrive in business? Visit my website at www.thepicoach.com. That is thepicoach.com to learn more. Hi, Tina. Welcome to the show. Hi. Good afternoon, John. Thank you for having me. Quite welcome. So how's the weather down there in beautiful Maricopa County today? Well, we are sitting at a sunny 50 to 60 degrees today, and uh, we are not shoveling sunshine. It's beautiful here. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's a good way to start, because here as we sit on (laughs) December 18th, uh, 2020, uh, I'm in uh, southwestern Connecticut. We have a foot of snow out there. Um, the local municipalities have just lifted their parking bans. And uh, hopefully this is going to be the last blizzard, only blizzard of the season. Uh, but anyhow, uh, I guess we're going to have a white Christmas. So uh, I just wanted to have you on the show because, you know, we're friends through LinkedIn. We have mutual friends. And I saw what you did. And I said, no, I want to ask her about these things. I want to ask her what she does over at Sub Rosa Investigations. And I think my listeners would like to get a, really enjoy what you have to talk about today. And if you just want to tell me how you got started as a PI and then take me through you know, your, your work record as well as now your different functions at Sub Rosa, I'm all ears. Sure. So when I was in high school, we had all kinds of different uh, career days and 
you know, I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to be when I grew up. Uh, the legal field kind of attracted me, but I didn't really feel like I fit into any one role. I kind of was somewhere between attorney or maybe a court reporter or paralegal or maybe a police officer, but none of those really fit. So uh, um, I ended up working for a law firm when I was in high school. So I uh, went to high school for half a day and then I uh, left school and went and worked. And, um, you know, I, I basically started learning the legal field and I really liked it a lot. Um, and so I felt like that was, you know, kind of where I belonged. And uh, I just, I read everything. Here I am, 17 years old in high school, and I'm, you know, sitting in a law firm reading pleadings, you know, <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. not, not the typical 17 year old, but I just loved it. Yeah. And uh, so others might um, be reading uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> And you're reading <laughs> depositions. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, I just thought it was fascinating. And, you know, uh, they would wonder why it took me so long to file while I was filing and real reading these, you know, these pleading backers back then, you know, you reviewed paper records and I just couldn't get enough. Mm. So, um, and what was so their practice area? On my... Can I ask you what their practice area was? Yeah, so that law firm was in Sun City, uh, which is uh, where a retirement community in Maricopa County, mm-hmm. out in the West Valley. And um, those attorneys did a lot of probate, real estate, uh, general corporate and litigation. They had a couple of attorneys there. Okay. So they were heavily on estate planning. But gotcha. uh, there was the attorney I worked for that did corporate. Um, and that was, you know, there's a lot of, exciting things in real estate. And here I am, you know, reading real estate dockets. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And uh, honestly, uh, I thought that uh, probate was kind of a sleepy practice area. And I didn't realize that uh, it was uh, as rough and ready as criminal defense. Uh, you know, look at the, uh, the fight over in the Prince estate where there's no will or Aretha Franklin. Again, no will. Just uh, those are kind of examples where you, know, you would think probate would be a, uh, you know, a mundane practice area, but it turns out to be quite uh, vivacious. But anyway, yeah, yeah, for sure. Probates so, get vicious. Yeah, they exactly. get vicious. People are, you know, back and forth, and some of the crazy things that people fight over are just uh, just amazing to me. But you know, um, somebody loses loses a loved one, and they get, uh, you know super amplified with their feelings and you know emotions so good way to put it actually a very good yeah way to put it, for real and yeah. uh, i just mentioned that out there because i could not uh, for the life of me i could not imagine working on a probate case of any nature for many of the years of my career and then when i saw what it was really all about like you just talked about it has as much uh, drama to it as say any other family type of uh, litigation only in this case one of the family members has expired. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, can unfortunately can no longer say what they want to do with their money or, you know, who they want to give their rings to or whatever. So, you know, even at 17, it was important life lessons back then to, uh, you know, make sure all of your affairs are in order. So there's no question when you're gone, but So I just continued on um, after high school and I just continued working for law firms and and learning. And I worked for several different law firms here in the Valley. And uh, 
somewhere in 1998, 1999, I started working for a, a large law firm in Phoenix. And uh, one of the managing shareholders said to me, hey, what do you think about working for the uh, in-house private investigator? Probably just uh, probably just doing some reports and you know memos, nothing big. I said, well, sure, that sounds exciting. So uh, the rest is history, as they say. Mm. I, uh, I started, you know, reviewing proprietary reports and uh, reviewing records and helping put reports together and making phone calls so the private investigator could, you know, prepare their case and do everything they needed to do. And, um, you know, it really worked out. And, and I just kind of felt like that's where I've always needed to be. But I just didn't really think of private investigations as my business or, you know, my career. Oh, I know that and feeling. when I, yeah, when I started doing that, I just felt like this is where I'm meant to be. So, um, yeah. And eventually I got my license and, uh, continued to, you know, just learn, research different cases. And, uh, then in 2012, I, uh, I met the CEO of my firm and, um, yeah, the rest is history. He hired me and, uh, I was, there were four investigators at the firm at the time and they were all owners. So I was the first investigator hired that was not an owner. So that was, you know, kind of exciting to see that dynamic. And, um, we were real small. We were in this small office in our building and, uh, we had tons of room and then we would add another investigator and another and another, and we completely outgrew our space. Wow. And we, had, yeah, it was, it was pretty exciting, um, pretty exciting. And as we would get new investigators that didn't have the experience, um, I would get to help train them and explain to them court dockets and how you research and how you find things and how you interpret things. And if you don't understand, you don't assume anything. You got to pick up the phone and call somebody and get some clarification. Um, because we're fact finders. We're not, we're not doing guesswork here. Um, and that was really exciting to teach people my knowledge and to have these junior investigators kind of look up to me and, uh, and ask me questions and just have a really open mind to learning. You know, the investigation process was really rewarding. There's a couple of things there. One that I understand is that uh, already from high school, you were starting to learn the legal words and you were learning that uh how they put the legal words together so that they would make filings or cases then you got after that you got to work with the investigator that you then learned how to put together investigations that would find the facts that could either support or take away from uh the client's position but in either case it would guide the attorney with how to go about with uh resolving the matter you know one way or the other so it seemed like right. there was like three steps there that uh, put you in a perfect place to, with your own and with your own enthusiasm, to grow and learn to put you in a place where you could become that fifth person at your organization. So uh, that's the one thing I wanted to comment on. Is there anything that you want to say back on that? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, everything I had done up to that point, all of the different law firms I had worked for, all the different P 
pieces of litigation, all the different, you know, pieces of evidence I had to get as a legal secretary or paralegal helped me learn once I became a private investigator where I could go get those records, you know, um, everything from police records to planning and zoning records to, you know, corporation records and, and professional licensure, you know, that was every step of the way I I learned those things so that when I came into my current position, I would say, Oh, let's, let's uh, check the planning and zoning records. Let's check the permits for that house. You know, all these different things that I was exposed to really helped. I know what you uh, just thinking about a case I had where uh, I was able to pull the minutes from a town meeting uh, that my client was just blown away by that when I brought that to his attention and laid out exactly what he needed to see uh, to help make his case. He had never heard of you know minutes from a town meeting <laughs> being uh, you know something that he could use for his uh, litigation. You know, but that's knowing where to look, right? That's that's uh, that's exactly right, yeah. and it's one hundred percent legal and it's one hundred percent public. And you know, sometimes you pay a small fee for records, and that's perfectly fine mm-hmm. okay and 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 sometimes exactly like you said our clients are blown away and and you know i just think to myself i just know where to find it you know there's nothing wrong with you because you don't i just happen to know where you find it and that's <clears throat> excuse me that's when it comes to uh hiring somebody who's an expert in a certain area they know where to find those records how to help you our attorneys are great at litigation and, and fighting for their clients, but they may not know where to, you know, get these little pieces of information that will help their client's case. And that's very rewarding. Yes. I, I like to think of it as uh, giving uh, David the uh, sm- small, smooth pebble uh, uh, stones for his slingshot or her slingshot in the case of that we're providing the attorney with facts that they use in court. They didn't have to go find the facts. That's what you did. And that's the thing that makes that, them shine. So uh, the other part that I found really interesting that you said there was the opportunity. That's the word I want to use, the opportunity to train new people in the best practices. Or in your case, Tina's way of doing things. <laughs> well, yes. Yes to both. You know, I learned along the way that you have to do everything 100% ethically and legally and think about the implications of the records that you produce. What if this, whatever police report calls for service, whatever it is, what if the other side sees it? Would I be embarrassed to go in front of a jury and and explain how I got that? 100% of the time, I'm not embarrassed. Um, And so we always have to think of that. Where did you get the information is that the truth? And, you know, can our client use this information? And to continually train people just because an attorney or a client asks you to do something doesn't mean that it's legal. And we really have to know uh, what our boundaries are. Mm. Oh, that's and true. we have to know when to push back and say, yeah, you know, Magnum PI can get that on TV, but <laughs> I can't get that in real life. And yeah, you know, sometimes it's just a little bit of an education into to kindly tell your clients, yeah, that would be really easy if I could get that. My job would be so much easier. But I'm sorry, but here's either a different way we can do it legally, or here's how you can do it legally. You know, through a subpoena or whatever. 
Yeah, exactly. But and, uh, I, I, uh, I have to tell you, uh, I chided a fiction writer about his fictional PI picking a lock to get into a apartment, and I said to him, "It is that is such a uh, that is such a uh, what's the word? It's a it's not a trope. It's it's such a uh, worn out cliche." And, yeah. it's, and it's also not the way uh, 99% of the private investigators will go about getting that information. Wouldn't it be a better read if you maybe talk to the superintendent and the superintendent said, oh, yeah, um, he, he moved out uh, a month ago. I don't know why I'm still storing this stuff here and opens the door for you. You know, yeah. And I, and I say that jokingly in a fictional case, in a fictional situation, but um, that so many people think that what we do is in the gray area, and it's not. It has to be 100 uh, percent above board, even probably more so than our friends in blue, because uh, obviously it's us that's going to get called to the stand, and our you know our professional standards are going to be at uh, held out in front of everyone. And we have the right. Uh, we not only have we also have the possibility of losing our licenses. So yeah. Yep. Makes, makes sense that we would want to do everything ethically, legally, above board, right? Yeah, because the the one private investigator out of thousands and thousands that does one thing wrong, it's going to be splashed all over the news that private investigators everywhere are misusing information. And that's, it couldn't be further from the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and part of what we have to do is represent our industry and show junior investigators, you know, we are ethical. We do this responsibly. We handle our information responsibly, um, you know, and you'll be on the winning side, you know, if you've got the truth and you do everything correctly. That's true. And and the opposite is, is if you teach uh, a new person in the business how to cut a corner, well, they're going to shave it even tighter. If uh, you teach a person how to take the easy way out, well, they'll find an easier way to even do it. And, but by teaching how to do it the right way the first time, the reasons why we do it this way, uh, so that there's no blowback either to the organization or to your client, uh, that, is, that then reinforces our own sense of professionalism that's within, within our industry. Is, is that, does that make sense what I just kind of repeated back to you? Yes, exactly. And, um, and, and I love hearing... Um, newer investigators and junior investigators in my office say, you know, Tina says to do this. And if we're looking at a case already, we save it. And that way, if our client ever comes back and asks us about it, we can tell them, oh, yes, we looked at that one. That's not really your subject or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, wow. I, I love teaching investigators, you know, the right way to do things, the right way to save backup and documentation. And hearing it back, it just, it makes me really happy. And, um, and I love seeing the confidence grow in the junior investigators in our office. And we have such a great learning and teaching environment that uh, I see them come in the first day, the first week, and then a couple of years later, they're still with our firm and they're so confident and they know, they know how to do an investigation. Um, and then I know, you know, Essentially, my legacy is in these younger, new investigators, and they're going to carry on that, those morals and those ethics. And 
I really love seeing that, you know? No, and it resonates with me because, yeah, I've had some great cases in my career. Sure, there's headlines. Yeah, yeah, I, I know all that. Yeah. But my greatest accomplishment has been doing exactly what you just talked about. That is training people that did not have a background in investigations, how to be not only competent investigators, but investigators that got turned on by investigating and learned how to become better investigators. And that legacy is something I agree is something that lasts long beyond whatever is in your bank account or whatever is in your you know, folder of headlines or newspaper. So yeah, I agree with you hundred percent there. So we've kind of talked generally, but, but also to your point, uh, by doing that kind of training, a couple of things come. One, it has to be an environment where they're allowed to make mistakes, not terrible mistakes or, or what do you want, want to say, uh, intentional mistakes, such as lying, cheating, or stealing. But mm-hmm. they're allowed, if they're work, allowed to work in an environment where they're allowed to make mistakes and they feel like they make a mistake, you can Tina about it and say, this is a mistake. You and they, they can then figure out a way to make sure that doesn't happen again but also the right way to do it. And it reinforces that it's a safe place to work. And this can only help your organization in terms of the bottom line, because you're not constantly hiring or not, you're not, you're constantly not recruiting, interviewing, selecting, hiring, training investigators. I mean, after a while, if you know the ones that stick, you don't have to go through that uh, hamster wheel of going through uh, investigators until you get the right one. Right. And, you know, we, we have such a great, um, you put it exactly perfectly. We have such a great learning and teaching environment, the way we've set it up. Um, and I, I tell the investigators, there's almost nothing you can do that we can't somehow reverse. And if we make a mistake, we tell our clients we made a mistake. But before that even happens, we have levels where we do quality control. So there's somebody like me or another more senior investigator looking over reports or seeing how we can make it better, making sure it's factual. Where did we get this information? Is that really our subject? Because you know how it is with common names. Mm-hmm. We got to make sure if we're reporting something that that's the right person. And yeah. this is not guesswork. We're not guessing. <laughs> no. And, and also to your point, I want to just tease this out too, is that if, if a mistake is made, you're going to catch it on the front end. Find a solution for it and then tell your client, this is the mistake we made. However, we did this, this, and this. This is our solution to the situation. Now, they don't have to have their fanny hanging out in the breeze when it comes time for trial or whatever filing they're doing because, well, the organization that they hired to find the facts for them didn't do it right or made a mistake and wouldn't own up to it. And now they're going forward with uh, information that is incorrect or worse, made up. Or fabricate, you know? So. Yeah. And I would say nine times out of 10, we catch mistakes before they even leave our office doors, you know? And, um, and we talk about what happened and, and why either you thought this was the person or how we could, you know, tighten the reins a little bit and not give our client 20 possibles, you know, for John Smith, let's, mm. let's rein in it a little bit and let's give them three instead of, you know, 20 possibilities. That's, that's a little more manageable, but, um, yeah, we usually before it even goes to the client, we've already resolved it. So there aren't those issues. Um, you know, they're just, they're all learning experiences and, um, 
they're not afraid to ask anybody, hey, what do you think about this? I don't understand this. Um, and we talk about it. Sometimes we get, you know, something weird that comes up that none of us have experienced. And we all kind of talk about it and round table it and, you know, figure out solutions. And the one thing I like about all of our different uh, investigators is they all have a little bit different thought process and they all have different ideas. And hey, that solves cases for us sometimes, you know, or, or, or create solutions for us, I should say. And so you. we're like, yeah. We- I hear you. I hear exactly what you're saying. I, I agree that yeah, um, it's not a cookie cutter process of hiring a certain um, person and then molding them into uh, an exact replica of yourself. It's, it's allowing their own uh, backgrounds and life history, which influences their curiosity and their inquisitiveness to be able to ask you, well, what about this? What about that? Have we looked at this? Have yep. we looked at that? And, you know, uh, and I agree with you. There's times when I'm just, my draw drops to the ground and say, I've been doing this for 30 years and I, or 40 years, and I've never, ever thought of that. That's a great idea. And mm-hmm. to allow that uh, camaraderie to exist, to allow that, gee, what if, so that they, they don't feel afraid or intimidated, uh, but they're able to think out of, outside the box. It just makes your organization that much stronger. So I guess yeah, speaks, I agree. Yeah, speaking of that, so just tell me what you guys all what you all do out there, and then you also have offices in <laughs> other locations, and just kind of tell me about yes. the business a little bit, because uh, I'm I'm really interested in what you all do because uh, it's not what my daily day to day is, and so I'm interested. Yeah, so Phoenix is the main hub uh, for for Subrosa Investigations, and then we have an office in Illinois. We have an office in Michigan, and uh, we're also licensed in Indiana and Wisconsin. So we are growing. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Phoenix Hub does all of the research investigations for our other two offices. And the Michigan and Illinois are, Michigan is almost 100% surveillance, and Illinois is very heavy on surveillance. Um, And then we also have... We do anything pre-litigation or post-litigation if there are expert witnesses or if there are claimants and injury cases. uh, We basically verify. We kind of do a little bit of the background. You know, we do a little bit of social media. We do a a little bit of background on them. And then, you know, the surveillance guys basically are boots on the ground. Um, And so any other item that's litigation-based we do. And we also have another division, which uh, we call transactional, and we do deep dive backgrounds for um, investment purposes. So they're very friendly. They're consented to. People know they're being investigated. And so uh, those are very intensive and they're long, but they're very interesting. So we have teams that work on those different aspects. That, that's a nice summary. We do a little bit of... Yeah, we do a little bit of trademark work as well, and uh, that's a lot of fun. So, you know, li- a little bit of that sort of thing, too. But uh, we do, yeah, a little bit of everything, a little bit of pre-employment, too. So we have a pre-employment division as well. Okay. Well, and and I think that in today's world where specialization might have been appropriate, say, between 2010 and 2019, well, all of a sudden, now in a pandemic, 
having different streams of income from different sources uh, allows you to have more flexibility, so to speak. Um, I can't say that yes. we, we uh, should always be thinking about having a well, a well-rounded portfolio of business assets because sometimes it does cause for a diffusion of marketing focus. But certainly in this world, I can't help but think that where one thing might drop off because of pandemic, other things might pick up because of it. So uh, can you speak to that at all? Yes. Yes, that's exactly right. And I I find that even outside of the pandemic, um, our different areas of focus really complement each other. You know, um, if we're maybe a little bit light on our personal injury, then our transactional and our pre-employment might be a little heavier. And they always seem to really balance out well. Mm. And, um, you know, I learned something valuable from one of the attorneys um, when I worked for the large law firm. And he said, never let one client be more than 25% of your income. Because if you lose that client, boy, you're going to be hurting. And, um, you know, that just always kind of stuck with me. But Sabrosa did this anyway. Um, and I, I think it's a nice compliment to have different areas that, you know, we all work together and personal injury might be lighter and then they help another division. So it just, it always seems to work out that we all help each other and, and pitch in as a team. And to your point, that the different, I don't want to use the word silo, the different uh, well, departments, what do you say? We call them departments, yeah. Yeah, departments. Uh, yes, they have their own revenue and expense projections, but they're flexible enough to allow that if one thing is dropping down, that they can then work in another area. It's not like, oh, I can't go over there. You know, I can't do that because, well, that's not what we do. It's like, no, we all work for the same company. The company needs us to work on this and that's what we're going to work on. So Yeah. And that's the exact mindset we've always had. And um, each one of our team members is, is a true team player and I've never had anybody say, oh, that's not my job. That's not my department. They, you know, one investigator could have a completely full caseload, but if he sees that the transactional department has a closing, he says, what can I do to help? What can Mm -hmm. I, you know, let's all get this done together. And um, that's just really the culture that we've maintained and supported. And everybody just is of that mindset. So we're really fortunate right now that we've got everybody that is a true team player and we've got investigators that are cross-trained and that's really served us well that they can basically serve in those you know multi you know different areas and switch back and forth with without missing a beat and the thing that i thought about and it's it's kind of a cutie way of saying it is that after the church event's over everybody pitches in to throw away the chairs Right, exactly. Yeah. It's not like, oh, it's your job or it's your job. No, we all do it to get it done. So, And I, I know that's, that's a straightforward example, but a little bit outside. Of it. So what do you yeah, like doing no, the most? Yeah, that's 100% correct. Yeah. So what do you like doing? What, should, what, what do you consider the things that uh, at this point in your career that you like working on the most, things that give you the most satisfaction, and, and how are you able to do that? I enjoy talking to clients and finding out um, – what they need to do for their case or what they're looking for and and kind of try to think about how we can help them or how we can best serve them. Um, and I also really, really enjoy um, 
quality controlling reports and discussing things with investigators and, and really continuing to teach them. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my absolute favorite really is, is teaching and, um, and helping them grow and, uh, improve our reports and and really it's ultimately to serve our clients so that they've got a stellar report and they've got options. You know, and I think back to what you said about on the, the work side about that, that you're determining from client what their wants are, but in reality you're teasing out what they need. Exactly. And sometimes they don't know what they need. Sometimes they just think that they want uh, a criminal check. Mm-hmm. And then we will start doing research and we'll find out, oh, this person has a bankruptcy. Oh, this person has, you know, foreclosure, tax liens. And we'll just say, you know, I know you only wanted a criminal, but is this important to you? Oh, gosh. Yes, that's important. Yeah. You know, they don't know what they don't know. And sometimes just telling them that, yeah. that really serves them and gives them information. And, and we're not charging them for that information, but just telling them you know, and and basically how can we help serve them better so that they can really make smart decisions for whatever case that they have and have all the information. And Tina, the way I would, I would say that is that you're not a lead runner where it's just a checkbox mentality. You're actually an investigative partner and finding out what they actually need to help prevail in their case. And it makes you, your organization shine when you're able to anticipate the needs of your client more so than they could even imagine. And because of your breadth of experience and what you find out there on the street or through research, you say, well, this is going to help you because da, 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 and they, they, they're blown away by it. And I guess, I guess I'm using the word blown away again. You're exceeding their expectations. And, and that's when you move from being a lead runner to an investigative partner. And the more of that relationship you have, I think it would be fair to say that you get referrals from satisfied customers to other people saying, oh. Um, Sub Rosa did this for us. I think you should uh, talk to them. They they should be able to help you. Yeah, that's exactly right. And um, getting returned clients and getting referred to new clients is the absolute best feeling because you know that you we did such a good job or we helped somebody that they they want to recommend us to other people and say you've got to use Sub Rosa. You've got to talk to these people about your case. And that's I mean that's honestly the best compliment, but yes, we love compliments from clients and we share them with the team and we all have great feel good moments where, you know, somebody did a great job on a surveillance or a locate or whatever. And we all share that and celebrate that together. And it's just, it's just another confidence booster. So. And it also reinforces that, uh, what the company does matters. And that the thought of maybe taking a shortcut or taking it easy just isn't there because it it reflects poorly on the organization, which then reflects poorly uh, in the client's eyes. They understand the importance of a satisfied client and the real life value of a client in terms of not only repeat business, but also referral activity and testimonials. So for sure. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I agree. And and drilling that down to uh, all the all the uh, people on the street that are digging the gold, uh, that's important. It really is because I know that a lot of organizations are uh, risk adverse in that, not the organization per se, but people working for the organization are risk adverse. They would not admit to making a mistake. So therefore, um, the work product is, yeah, it's bulletproof, 
but it also is uh, uh, negative findings. Well, negative findings element. after negative findings. You know, and it's like, yeah, you understand what I'm saying? You can't, you can't do anything wrong if you always say, "Well, I, I wasn't there." Well, no, that's not entirely correct. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, does that make sense? What I just said? Yeah, yeah, and you've you've got the human element too. So you know, sometimes we make mistakes. <laughs> that's right. And that's allowed. I mean, but the thing is, um, yeah. the organization has to be able to allow the, the frontline employees to put their best foot forward. And sometimes they'll stub their toe. And that just happens. But yep. at least if everybody knows that we're trying to make the best effort all the time, um, the best is going to come from it. I think what a high tide rises all boats. I, I know that's that's a saying along our coastal waters. I mean, I, I know you guys oh, out in the, okay. the desert don't always get that. But yeah. No, no, we're a little bit landlocked. I, I didn't get that joke. <laughs> I, know, I know. Anyway, um, so tell me, uh, what's what's next for you, and what's uh, what do you uh, what do you, what direction are you guys going in? Well, um, what's next for me is um, I'm personally super involved with NCISS, which uh, is National Council on Investigation and Security Services. That's right. Um, I served as the Region five director for about two and a half years. So I think it was uh, 10 or 12 states um, that I basically was their, you know, liaison to the board. And then I've recently been promoted to a uh, second vice president. So um, yeah, involved in that. And we have uh, an absolutely great board and absolutely love our members and you know, we're looking into some DMV issues going into 2021 and some privacy concerns. So, uh, you know, it's a little scary that uh, we're losing some of our DMV access in many states. So that's kind of what we are watching out for currently. But um, I'm really pleased to be involved in that and, you know, volunteering my time and, uh, and Sabrosa has been great from, you know, moment one at uh, backing me up and in, in my desire to pursue this volunteer position. They've just been great. So, no, you know, I look NCISS, forward to continuing my work with. You know, NCISS is not one of those shows on TV about, you know, Los Angeles <laughs> or Miami. It's, uh, no, it's, it's, a, it's an organization that is, I would say it's an umbrella organization of all uh, private investigator associations and individual private investigators that want to have a uh, a uh, national impact on legislation and lobbying. Does that make sense? That's exactly right. And we watch those legislation bills that could potentially take away our access to things that you know we've enjoyed for years, like getting driving records, getting vehicle registrations, and you know, again, how we ethically use those records um, and, you know, different privacy that has been threatened in the past. You know, people many, many years before me have fought, you know, so we could continue getting full socials, full dates of birth and, you know, what everything else that falls in between that we are legally and ethically allowed to use in our toolbox as private investigators. And that's that, that says it much better than I could. I appreciate you taking the time to say that. No, really, because uh, um, an individual private investigator one day loses an opportunity 
where the door is shut to them to gather information. And we are fact finders. So anytime right. that happens, an individual PI, a private investigator, loses that opportunity. He doesn't have much, he or she doesn't have that much recourse. But if there's an organization standing behind a private investigator, standing behind the association, standing behind uh, a strategic attempt to uh, keep us with the availability of many of the resources that we learned and fought hard to get, then that allows us to, to be able to do our job better and more effectively and give our clients more value. I'm sure. That's correct. And it's, it's much easier to talk to lawmakers before a law becomes reversed than to go back and try to get access again. Um, And so that's one thing that NCSS does is they try to stay ahead of those things that could, you know, take away our ability to get driving records or get addresses on driving records. And, you know, some states are allowed to have driving photos. Some states aren't, you know, we just try to stay ahead of that because it's, it's hard to reverse and go back and say, well, you took this away. Uh, Can I please have it back? (laughs) No, yeah. they're not going to give it back. <laughs> no, I understand that. No, I do. So, uh, Tina, it's been wonderful having you on today. How can people reach you if they have any questions? Sure. People can uh, reach me at tthomas at sabrosapi.com. They can go to our website, which is uh, sabrosapi.com, and see all the different things we do. And feel free to reach out to any of us. Well, and I hope somebody takes advantage of that opportunity and learns from you. Thank you. I do too. I'm happy to help anybody. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, John. Thank you for listening. I hope that I've earned your interest and your time. Please leave any comments on the website, www.johnhoda.com. J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Our guest next week is James D.F. Hanna. James is a Seamus Award-winning author of the Henry Malone novels, as well as the novel The Righteous Path. A native of eastern Kentucky and southern West Virginia, Hannah was an award-winning former journalist and columnist before moving into governmental public relations. He lives with entirely too many cats in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm looking forward to my interview with my friend, who I had a chance to sit with in Dallas in 2019, when he was nominated for a... Seamus Award. So happy that he was able to win a second nomination. Thank you for listening. Make sure to check out our website, thepicoach.com, for more episodes, PI coaching services, books, and more. If you were either informed, inspired, or entertained by this conversation today, don't be bashful. Share this link with your friends. Better still, go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. It's the best way to grow the circle around our campfire. If you have any questions, please reach out through our website, thepicoach.com. Thanks so much, and have a great day.